So we all have that friend. I'm assuming we all have that friend. Maybe if you don't, that means you're that friend. But when you ask them about a movie or a book, they kind of roll their eyes at you and go, and you just got to see it. It can be frustrating, right? Like, I'm asking you because I want to know before I see it. <laughs> Should I see it? But we, we've been there. Um, and I kind of get it, this idea that you can't really uh, know it. I can't really tell you. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. This has become one of my favorite internet trends. It's been out for a while. Um, but it, it, it kind of keeps giving. It keeps coming across my feeds. And, uh, and it's either books or movies, but it's called Books Described Badly, or Movies Described Badly. And the task is to take a book or a movie and in a sentence or two, uh, describe it in a way that's not wrong, but certainly not right. Here's a couple, see if you can, you can figure these out. Lonely rich dude stalks careless rich girl who likes his shirts. He dies. That's the great Gatsby. A group of children learn about racism and assault. Make fun of a handicapped man who stabs another man who's attacking a giant ham. That's To Kill a Mockingbird. A group of old men overcome racial differences to take on the world's most powerful jeweler. It's the Lord of the Rings. An old man's daughters are mean to him, so he goes crazy. Everyone dies. That's King Lear. I love these. Um, it's clickbait for me. If I see it come up, I'm going in. They're funny, uh, but they're also, I also love them because they teach us that maybe our pretentious friend is right. I mean, how do you explain a masterpiece? I was a high school literature teacher. I could talk to you for the next 30 minutes about To Kill a Mockingbird. But to really understand it, you've got to read it. If you haven't, you should. I could talk to you for days about King Lear. I could even tell you to go home and read it, but in that case, to understand it well, you actually have to go see it performed and performed well. But we like a summary, don't we? We like an abridgment, a reductionist slogan that make us feel like we know it, even though we don't really know it. We're going to talk a little bit about theology today. And theology is one of those places that we love a reductionist slogan. And this tendency does damage. I don't know you all well enough to know if, like how closely you embraced your reform distinctives and have been waiting for me to touch on the buzzwords that are in this passage. But this passage has one of those big reformed trump cards in it. A gotcha proof text that we often use in terms of our doctrines of election and predestination and God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about them today. We have to. They're here. But I want you to hear me before we start. What I really want to talk about is how 
These doctrines are complex and even mysterious. And how our theology described badly tactics can be quite dangerous. And that actually, I think, theology described badly is a tool that is used by our Ephesian enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil, to manipulate us into creating a church that is more focused on those powers than on the gospel itself. Because ultimately, like King Lear, the knowledge the point of a word like predestination is not that you can explain it well and concisely. That's nice and all. But the point is that you experience it in Christ. So let's get the, the theological arm wrestling out of the way first. Listen, I love theology. You can't become a Presbyterian minister or even make it through seminary if you don't geek out about theology at least a little bit. But I want everyone to stop and listen to this. Our finely tuned, well-argued answers to every question out there, theology, systematized perfectly by men like Calvin or Burkhoff or Bovink, it's not the point. Theology is not the gospel. And it is only useful as it draws us closer to Jesus Christ and his work. And when it gets in the way, and I will tell you, much to the chagrin of some of my friends, that it often does get in the way. And when it does, it becomes an idol just like anything else. So I want you to see and embrace good theology. It can point you very well towards Jesus Christ. But if Christ and him crucified is not where it leads you, then please drop it and go back to the cross. Now I touched my notes. But we have to acknowledge what's here because it's here for a reason, right? It's here for us to learn something. And the theologian in me will tell you that it is very difficult to read Ephesians chapter 1 with any honesty and not see that Scripture proclaims some things, particularly that God in his grace and mercy chooses us before we even have the chance to choose him, verse 4, that he predestines us for the gifts of his salvation, verses 5 and 11, and that he has a sovereign will, verses 5, 9, 11, and 12, and that all things are part of the perfect plan that he is working out in Christ, verse 10. I will be bold, hopefully, to be provocative rather than insensitive and say that to develop a view of history and salvation that does not put God firmly in the driver's seat has to ignore this passage or sanitize it drastically. And it's not just here. This is a direct passage. It's like why we like to get it out of our pocket when we're having arguments. 
but it's all over scripture. But here's the kicker. While scripture affirms, this, this scripture in particular, affirms the sovereignty of God and election, at the same point, scripture affirms things that we feel are contradictory to this, like human will and responsibility. That's not here in this passage particularly, but the act of belief that we, we do see that as a gift of grace, but that act is not separated in the process of salvation. It's all over scripture. Things like work out your salvation. Things like faith without works is dead. Commands all over the place to do and do not. Even in this letter, as we get towards the end, we'll see Paul give instructions about what we are to do and who we are to be, the choices that we are to make, and tells us to do the hard work of putting away the old flesh. Even Calvin, whose name I think sometimes gets attached to philosophies that maybe he wouldn't support as much. But that great kind of first systematizer of these doctrines, while he rejects his contemporaries' views um, and the way that they were leveraging free will, he doesn't reject the doctrine outright. But actually, he argues that what we do is not done through compulsion. And this is where we get to our theology described badly problem. To our human mind, this is either, either one or the other thing is going on. Either God is sovereign and in control or our choices matter. And that's not just a theological question, actually. If you survey history, and philosophy. You see, this is one of the oldest questions that we have. Is everything determined? Or is life what you make of it? Some people hold that everything is determined, and we see this in things like scientific determinism. Everything is out of our control. It's all external factors that's what really drives what we do. We see it in literature, the story of Oedipus, this poor man who has prophesied that he would do the horrible thing of marrying his mother and killing his father. So he does everything, everything in his power to avoid that. And he avoids it so strongly that he ends up in that very place. But on the other hand, we have philosophies that say that Life is what you make it. This is our American philosophy, right? Our individualism. The future is yours. You can do whatever you put your mind to. And so we try and answer this question. We try to explain how either God has ultimate control over history and salvation or how human agency is important. And we naturally think this is an either-or proposition because that's logical, right? And then what we do is we come up with our solution and we simplify <laughs> and we turn the complex narrative of Scripture 
into these logical categories in our systematic theology, and then we know we condense them down to, I don't know, five points. And then, because that's not punchy enough, we boil it all down to one word, and we argue until we're red in the face about predestination. A word that's only used five times in Scripture in three passages. And you can see how this becomes our own version of describing one of the greatest works in literature as some old guy whose daughters are mean, so he goes crazy. See, the reality is, when that human question is asked to Scripture, is there a greater plan that's driving everything, or do our actions matter? Scripture kind of gives us that funny look and says, yeah. Yes, that's the answer. Contrary to every other human philosophy, Scripture asks us to embrace a truth that in our limited minds is a mystery. How can God direct all things? And our choices matter? That's a mystery. Paul calls it a mystery right here. He uses that word for those of us who are uncomfortable with the word mystery. Verse 9, he calls it a mystery. And our faith, even when we work it out well in our theology, is full of mysteries. The mystery of eternity. The mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the hypostatic union of Christ. How Jesus could be fully God and fully man in one body. We're asked to embrace these things that we can't logically work out and be okay with that tension. But even still, we try to explain and unravel and sloganize the mystery of God's work and our participation in history, and that can be very dangerous. Actually, if you know your church history, like all of the heresies of the early church, these topics that, you know, these great theological fathers were writing treatises about, every single one of them came, not because somebody was like, I don't like this Jesus thing, let's mess it up, but because they were taking one of those mysteries and trying to solve it logically. That's where every heresy came from. Every one of them. This doesn't make sense. Let's try and explain it in a way people can get it. And the result was heresy. I think beyond that, this practice of theology described badly is actually a tool for the devil and the world and the flesh. And even though I'm halfway through the stream of this sermon, I want to talk about that because I think that's what's really going on here in this passage. This is why Paul tells us about election and sovereignty and God's purpose to revealing this mystery to our eyes. See, this doctrine of predestination as we have it, that God has chosen us and therefore we have been saved and cannot be otherwise, 
is often described in a, in a few different ways. The first um, way that it's described, it leads to what we call antinomianism. It's this idea that because everything is directed and you and I are chosen, we can really do whatever we want. We can have whatever we desire. We don't have to worry about whether it's right or wrong. Our sins are forgiven yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? So why worry about it? And I want to, when you hear me, if you've heard this accusation or if you're making this accusation, this is a fair accusation of our stream of theology. If we are truly predestined and if we are chosen and saved through that, then our actions don't matter. Then of course we can do what we want. Sin away, brothers and sisters. The flesh loves this version of theology described badly. It loves it when we lean into God's work without considering his desire for us. But Paul's own insistence, even here in Ephesians, should help us see that predestination does not free us from human accountability. I mean, what is the purpose that Paul assigns to this predestination? We are predestined to be what? Holy and blameless. He goes on to speak pretty specifically about the sins that we're to reject later on in this, this letter and the works that we are to embrace. In other places, he takes it on pretty directly. In Romans, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And again, a little bit later in Romans, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but grace? By no means. Paul affirms, along with the rest of Scripture, that while we are predestined for salvation by his grace, while that is from God and not from us, our choices actually matter. God, by his grace and his grace alone, has saved us from the sins of the flesh. But we are called to struggle. We are called to wrestle with our will against that same flesh that we have been given victory over. And to reject that nuance is to allow the flesh to revert the doctrine of grace into something that it's not meant to be. Reformed theology also gets accused of a gross kind of elitism. Chances are this is most people's aversion to the doctrine of election. I've heard this argument more than anything else, I think. This idea that God chooses, that we're saved not by any agency of our own, but because God has chosen us, has selected us to be the people of God. And we're called out for this perceived gross division between the elect and, well, theologically, and I hate to even use this word, uh, the reprobate. 
those who are chosen and those who, however you want to say it, are either not chosen or those who are kind of anti-chosen. And then we're accused that because of that, we neglect things like evangelism, we neglect things like justice, just on the basis of God's going to call who he's going to call, he's going to do what he's going to do, so why? And guys, this accusation has some real teeth. And if we hide behind the, well, that's just what the Bible says, I think we're in error, gross error. Because there's nuance here as well. And we oversimplify this mystery of God way too often. I will never deny that God has chosen. It's all over scripture. It's in the way he tells the story from the very beginning to the very end. It's right in the text. But what we have done with this doctrine is so reductionist. And through it, we misunderstand what is actually being communicated by Scripture. And in that, we have given a great power to the world in his enmity, creating perhaps the most aggressive and most disturbing us versus them category that we could create. So I've wrestled with this one a lot as a lifelong Reformed apologist. And I'll tell you what. Scripture absolutely, repeatedly affirms the positive call of God's people, but only very, very occasionally does it speak at all about a negative call. That word that I actually have grown to hate, reprobation. I think we have it because it has systematic merit, but it has like zero pastoral merit, like zero. There are these places, just a couple of them, where scripture speaks seemingly coldly about the hardening of Pharaoh or of this Esau whom he hated. But it's only when we use them in this reductionist way as proof texts that we should even ever imagine them creating these in and out categories. So it's never what they're actually saying. It's never what they're actually doing. Election in scripture is always used as an affirmation of God's gracious love, his choice, not our merit, his love, not our achievement. It's all about grace and that's what it's about. And when the Bible does speak of reprobation, it's only ever used in these couple of places where God is still leaning into that positive choice. Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated in Romans and before that in Malachi isn't about Esau at all. Esau's not important to that description. It's all about Jacob. And this idea that Jacob, through no right of his own, that Israel, through no right of their own, have been elevated, have been loved in a way that is undeserved and only through grace. And that is the point. And if we're using the doctrine of election to draw lines between the privileged elect and the wicked reprobate, we're doing something that only God could ever have a right to do, but even so does incredibly sparingly. In fact, what we are told 
is to love our enemy. We are told to bring the word of God to them. We are told to make disciples. We're actually told that God desires none to perish. So we, we should never see the elect and the reprobate. Maybe what we should see is the already and the not yet. And do our part to love like Christ. This bit in here that's a little bit hard to wrestle with, that's rooted in the fact that that Paul is actually talking to a primarily Gentile congregation here as a Jewish person in order to bridge this gap that's there. Or he talks about us first and then you. He says, you know, we who knew Christ first, we the Jewish population, and then you also, the Gentile population, What he uses this for is to bring people together, not to separate. And then to trust God to work out the rest. Otherwise, we allow that power of the world to pervert the beautiful doctrine of God's election. The other thing, I would say the last thing, but it's not the last thing that Reformed theology is criticized of, but in these big ones, it's criticized within this doctrine of sovereignty. Because the doctrine of sovereignty, of course, is cold and fatalistic. It's basically just determinism with a little bit of a Jesus twist, right? It has been written, nothing we do matters. Let's just ride this thing out. I shouldn't have to lean too hard on this point. I think it's a pretty fair critique. And this kind of theology described badly gives a lot of power to the devil. Not only do we need to continue to embrace the mystery of that intersection of God's will and our responsibility and reject a form of deterministic sovereignty that doesn't inspire us to be drawn to God. But we need to see here particularly what the key to all of this is. Why has God revealed the mystery to us? Why does he reveal his will to us? Because his will is tied to a wonderful reality and a glorious plan. See, in determinism, nothing I do matters. It's an uncomfortable philosophy. It's a dark philosophy. The determinism we see in the world and that we are accused of holding is that there is no plan, there is no direction. It's all just chaos, a string of reactions that will burn up someday anyway to go back to Shakespeare in another tragedy, Macbeth's favorite, famous line, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's determinism. 
And quite frankly, that's how a lot of us hold on to the doctrine of, of God's sovereignty. We might add some mumbo jumbo about how it's all okay, because at least we're the privileged elect. <laughs> but then we keep our nose down and just wait for this place to burn. And when we do that, we create something far worse, I think. We create a cold, callous, maybe even evil God who delights in suffering. No, really. We need to hear this accusation. We need to own it. There are so many people that I know who want nothing to do with our God. Because if God is sovereign and the world looks like this, then, man, he is a villain. When evil happens, death and despair, disaster, violence, illness, when wars break out, when earthquakes erupt, we've lost any nuance to what God is really doing. All we're left in that place is platitudes like, God's in control and it's all part of the plan. And our neighbors hear this and they think, well, I want nothing to do with that God. And they shouldn't. That is a cruel God. But this is not what God is communicating to us. This is a perversion of the doctrine of his sovereignty. It allows the devil to present a God that is evil and oppressive. See, the mystery of sovereignty that's revealed to us here, that mystery that we are shown, but it's still a mystery. Realize he doesn't change that word. It's still a mystery. We see this tension between the brokenness of the world and sin and evil, our own tragic choices, and this all-powerful, all-loving God who is working to pull all these things together in one perfect plan that culminates in Jesus Christ. And of all the mysteries of our faith, this one might be the most mysterious. How God can work within the real terror and horror of the flesh and the world and the devil to unite all things in Jesus Christ. This is a profound statement. God is taking all things, the good, the bad, the past, the present, and the future, the exciting and the mundane, his sovereignty and our will, and he is uniting them in this figure, Jesus Christ. This word unite is a compelling word in the Greek. It can be translated as sum up. And unlike our summing up badly in Christ, all things come together in a way that finally makes sense, that finally has meaning, finally. This is the error of our reductionist slogans that miss the mark. It's the error that even our best theology, hear me, even our best theology is a sad substitute for the true thing that is Jesus Christ. It's like reading King Lear alone in a quiet corner compared to seeing it performed in all of its glory. The joy of God's sovereignty 
is that it has its fruition in Jesus Christ. That all things have come about to see him in the center of history, to see him as the answer to our questions, to see him as the victor finally at long last over the flesh and the world and the devil. And understanding this doctrine as best as we can, it can be helpful as long as it causes us to long for him and to look towards him. Because he is so much greater than any summary that we can offer. He's so much greater than any theological system that we can put together. Here's the kicker, and I have to hit this part way faster than I want to because these theological things take time, right? He is the only way that this whole thing can be summed up in a way that we can celebrate. Because in him, this summing up of all things, in him, this glorious conclusion that we come to, it includes and prioritizes our election, our adoption, our redemption, our forgiveness. In him, we have heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and If we have believed that, if we have believed in him, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who guarantees us our inheritance. And that is what Paul is trying to say to the Ephesians. All these things that you're afraid of, all these powers that have been over you, all of them are answered in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is, that's what Paul is trying to say, and it's why God chose to let us peek, but only peek at the mystery of his perfect plan. Not so that we could know that we can do whatever we want because we're covered. Not so we can know that we're you know, doing better than everybody else because we're chosen. Not so that we can say, let's just hide in the corner until this whole place burns down because God's doing something else. But so that we can be sure, so that we can have this guarantee, so that we can trust that he is doing wonderful things and live in that glorious promise. And we can only do that when we let go of our badly described versions of all this and look to Jesus Christ himself. If we don't, we just become more tools of the world and the devil and the flesh. And, you know, if you hear me here as the Presbyterian teacher, then why on earth is he attacking his own theology? This is the same on the other side of the theological spectrum. It absolutely is. I think our brothers and sisters that want to nuance things in the other direction, that have these over-realized and reductionist doctrines of free will, it leads, leads to other perversions. I think it leads to legalism. It leads to clean and unclean divisions. It leads to a random and rudderless world. But I'm speaking to my tribe. We all need to embrace the mystery of what has been revealed to us in Christ. 
And understand, predestination is not antinomian liberty, but it's freedom to be holy in Jesus Christ. Election is not division, but is inspiration to love all well in Jesus Christ. And sovereignty is not cold determinism, but it is encouragement to participate in this plan who is Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the mystery, Lord. Because whatever conclusion we come to in the world that either everything is written or the world is what we make it, it leads us to places that we can't, we can't hold on to that aren't tenable. But in your love and in the mystery of what you are doing, you have created a space for us to live in this tension, trusting in the one who resolves it. I pray that we would look towards Jesus Christ. That we would understand that he is the plan. That he is the answer. And where that is confusing or illogical, that we would embrace it. We pray these things for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In the name of your son. Amen.